Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by Daniel McCarthy, who is editor of Modern Age, a conservative quarterly journal. And we're going to be talking about Tuesday's elections and what they say about the state of American politics. So, Dan, yesterday we had the first election day since Donald Trump won the White House and it was nothing but victory for the Democrats, it seems. Should we see this as the day that the Democrats started to bounce back, or is it the beginning of the failure of Trumpism? Well, it really just has more to do with the uh, basic partisan, partisan dynamics of the United States. So Virginia has been a very uh, difficult state for Republicans uh, for well over a decade now. It has gone Democratic in each of the three uh, last uh, presidential elections, and the Republicans have not won a gubernatorial race in Virginia since 2001. Mm. So um, it was pretty much inevitable that the Republicans uh, – I shouldn't say inevitable, but it, certainly the deck was stacked against them uh, when it came to uh, winning the governorship and uh, winning the other uh, statewide offices in Virginia. As for New Jersey, that's an even more uh, sort of liberal state. And uh, again, there it's not a surprise at all that a Democrat uh, you know, sort of won the governorship. So uh, much of this is, um, you know, sort of par for the course for American politics. Um, however, that's not to say that there isn't an element here of sort of Trumpism uh, generating a certain backlash among moderates and among leftists who are now more energized to come out. So it's just very hard to parse out, uh, you know, to what extent this is simply the natural pendulum of American politics and to what extent this is something that is particular to uh, a kind of anti-Trump backlash. Well, yes, because uh, I mean, I read a lot on conservative websites about how Ed Gillespie, the Republican candidate for Virginia, was sort of making a great surge in the last few days. And he was going to show that Virginia still could be a Republican state. But he failed quite drastically. So it feels a little bit as though people are defaulting to the demographic argument, whereas in the run up, they weren't. Well, you know, Ed Gillespie um, was considered to be a viable candidate because he did surprisingly well in 2014 uh, mm. when he challenged Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat here in Virginia. And at the time, uh, it was considered that Warner would be a shoe in for reelection. But in fact, uh, you know, Ed Gillespie came very, very, very close uh, within, you know, I think one percentage point of defeating Mark Warner. Uh, and that was just extraordinary. Absolutely no one had predicted that. Now, that was in 2014, which was the high watermark of sort of um, the anti-Obama reaction among the electorate. And it was a very, very good year for Republicans. So that in itself kind of um, sends a mixed message, I think, that should be analyzed. So on the one hand, the fact that uh, Gillespie came so close made Republicans think, OK, this time in, uh, in 2017, he really can go all the way. But on the other hand, it has to be remembered that 2014 was absolutely the best possible environment for a Republican to do very well in Virginia, and Gillespie still fell short. So that, I think, indicates that, um, you know, uh, fighting in a uh, rather more difficult environment in 2017, Gillespie was going to fall short again. And the second thing that's worth mentioning here is that um, it was surprising to everyone that Gillespie was doing as well as he was doing in these sort of last few weeks of uh, the Virginia race uh, this year. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, you know, when, when the race began a few months ago, it was really assumed that uh, Northam would easily crush um, uh, uh, Ed Gillespie. Mm. So the surprise was not so much that uh, Gillespie failed, but rather that he seemed to have a shot in the first place. 
Trump was very quick to tweet after the after the result that it was because Gillespie didn't embrace him, as he put it. Is that true, do you think? Or is it actually that Gillespie did take the Trump voters, that there just aren't enough Trump voters in, in Virginia? Well, you're probably right on that second point, because if you remember uh, last year's election, uh, Donald Trump lost uh, the state of Virginia to Hillary Clinton yes. by almost uh, six points. So if Trump himself couldn't win when he was up against a Democrat that people you know, had as deep reservations about as they did with Hillary Clinton, then it was very unlikely that a candidate who was less than Trump, uh, a guy like Ed Gillespie, was going to be able to succeed against a Democrat who was kind of less polarizing and less objectionable to people uh, than Hillary Clinton was. Um, so Ed Gillespie himself tried to walk a very thin line. He wanted to be uh, kind of identified as not uh, simply a clone of Trump, not simply someone who was following uh, orders from the White House. But he also wanted to tap into the energy, uh, especially on issues like immigration, uh, that has fueled the Trump uh, movement. So you could say that, you know, in trying to strike a balance, um, you know, Gillespie was just unsuccessful. And he mm -hmm. wound up perhaps not firing up the pro-Trump base all that much. But he also wound up alienating the anti-Trump uh, voters. So I think Gillespie probably didn't do himself any favors with his middle-of-the-road approach. Could it be that looking ahead to the midterms, actually, in other states where you don't have such high levels of immigration, the Trumpist base will be more fired up now because, you know, I saw Ann Coulter saying that Virginia is what will happen if we don't sort out immigration across the country. Well, you know, I'm skeptical of that. Uh, simply looking at American politics over the last 20 years, um, first of all, I mean, even longer than 20 years ago, uh, presidents tended to lose seats in all midterm elections. Mm. And really, over the last uh, three presidents, with uh, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and going all the way back to Bill Clinton, uh, sooner or later, one of the midterm elections has cost uh, the president control of both the House and the Senate in Congress. So it seems to me that we're likely to see a repeat of that. And there really will be a tremendous tide of sort of anti-Trump votes uh, coming out in uh, November of 2018. But that's not necessarily just about Trump. I think the, the tendency is for people to say that because Donald Trump is personally such a polarizing figure, that therefore all of these effects we see are about him personally. And that's not the case, that in fact, um, you know, whether it's George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, there's always a backlash against the president in office these days. And sooner or later, that tends to lead to enormous losses in Congress. What is your sense of Trump's popularity at the moment? We, we've had this impression a little bit over here that since Bannon has left the White House, there's been a sort of stabilising of the ship. Is that wishful thinking? No, it's not. Uh, that's actually quite correct. Uh, you know, Trump is still um, somewhat unpopular, in fact, quite unpopular by the standards of, uh, you know, sort of presidents throughout history. Mm. And yet he's not uh, sort of more unpopular than he was when he managed to uh, win last year's election. And I think that's the key thing. And his popularity doesn't seem to be deteriorating very much, especially among his own supporters. Um, so we are in a position again where people, a lot of pundits look at the numbers and they say, well, you know, if he's only got, uh, you know, high 30s or low 40s of, of support, then he's got to be doomed. But of course, they looked at the poll numbers last year and they also said, oh, this is not even a contest. Hillary Clinton is, you know, a shoe in for uh, winning last year's election. And then they were extremely surprised on Election Day. And uh, that seems to be the case again now where people are saying, well, Trump is historically unpopular for a president this early in his administration. But you know what? Trump has defied the odds before. And as long as his position is not deteriorating, I think he's actually uh, quite strong. But to do so, presumably he needs some sort of legislative triumph in the next year or so. And I suppose that the hope is that the tax plan is that. Do you get the impression that the tax plan has the capability to, to make him popular? 
You know, I really don't. Uh, the tax plan is getting hit from all sides right now. Progressives don't like it. Uh, you know, the uh, Small Business Association here in the United States doesn't like it. Uh, some of the larger businesses do like it. And, uh, you know, sort of uh, certain uh, veteran uh, Republican, you know, tax warriors like it. Mm. But then there are many ordinary Republican voters who seem to be very skeptical about it. And uh, there are fears that uh, even though it cuts taxes uh, on the broad scale, that uh, too many groups of people will actually see their taxes go up. So there's a lot of ambivalence, even among conservatives and Republicans, and there's even a certain degree of hostility and resistance uh, in some quarters of uh, the right. And um, and then, of course, the left is wholly against it. So that puts this tax reform uh, attempt in a very difficult position. So it's popular with the Wall Street Journal, but not much elsewhere, is that fair? That's pretty much correct. And, you know, I mean, the argument that uh, many advocates of tax reform make is that this is a beginning, not an end. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's kind of there are two arguments which rather contradict one another, but they're actually both in play at the same time. One of these is that, you know, it's really important that the House and Senate uh, ta- tackle tax reform right now because this is kind of a once in 30 years opportunity to do it. But then there's also this sense when you actually talk to some of the experts on this issue, some of the um, sort of Republican conservative, you know, pro tax cut experts. There's also a sense that if this succeeds, it's only the beginning and that there may, in fact, be further tax cuts in years to come and that that would, in fact, um, address some of the concerns that people have right now that um, certain groups are not getting as much of the benefit as they would like, or that certain groups may actually see their uh, taxes go up. So it's very hard to say how that's going to play out. But right now, in terms of messaging, in terms of being able to just um, popularize this bill with the public, there seem to be some pretty strong headwinds. Yes, I I mean, at first glance, it seemed to be a, a simplification of the American tax system, which seemed obviously to the good. But actually, there's there's this thing, like this mortgage dividend tax, which could take a huge amount of the value of each American's home. And, and that presumably is very troubling to the to the large swath of the middle class that should be moving towards Trump if Trump is going to win. Well, it's enormously complicated, as you point out. The um, you know the reason there are all these sort of exemptions and loopholes and deductions in the tax code is because um, you know there are there are interests that favor having all of those things, and as a result, anytime someone attempts to cut any one of those sort of special interest deductions, mm-hmm. uh, that organized interest uh, leaps into action politically and tries to uh, to prevent that from happening, to, pre- to prevent that from being taken away from them. Uh, so on the one hand, even though everyone says they want a simpler tax code, in fact, when you actually drill down and get down to specifics, uh, there are enormously powerful interests that don't want to see simplification take place. And it's very interesting. I mean, something like the mortgage deduction, um, if you are you know, a, a pretty wise homeowner and you just you know, own your own home and you, um, uh, you know, have a, a low interest uh, mortgage, you're probably not actually getting that much of a deduction from the current tax code. Mm. But if, on the other hand, you're kind of speculating in real estate and you're taking out you know, a lot of different properties and you're, you're, you're taking out loans that have very high interest rates, then you're getting a very large benefit from that uh, mortgage deduction. Yeah. So even though the mortgage deduction tends to be framed as being this you know, uh, vital bulwark of the middle class, um, there are grounds for you know, sort of questioning that. And similarly, there's a deduction for um, state and local taxes where – um, you know, each state imposes its own uh, taxes, um, and each locality can do so as well. And there's, you know, provisions in the federal tax code to basically deduct that from your overall income, so that you're paying, you know, you're not double paying in effect, paying, you know, high rates with the federal government and also high rates with state and, and local governments. Um, this is one of the exemptions that is, uh, you know, uh, on the chopping block right now. And this too is something you would immediately think, well, this is going to be, you know, a disaster for the middle class. But I've actually had people point out to me, and I think there's some truth to this, 
that if taxpayers, especially wealthier taxpayers, were to bear the full brunt of the high taxes of states and localities as well as the federal government, that would create an enormous uh, political pressure on states and localities to actually bring their taxes down. So the effect of this so-called um, SALT exemption, the state and local taxes exemption, mm. is that it actually um, uh, sort of incentivizes and, um, and subsidizes very high tax rates at the state and local level. So if you got rid of it, you might actually see you know, taxes, uh, tax reform take place at state levels as well as at the federal level. So again, the, the complexity of what's in play here is just very hard to exaggerate. And there are so many different interests that stand to gain or lose that it's a, um, you know, it's, it's the most complicated war that's ever been fought. I, I do remember from living in America just how complicated American tax can be. <laughs> let, let's, meanwhile, we have Trump. Let's do a little bit at the end on Trump in Asia. And I'd say the most striking thing about this tour so far has been the lack of explosive headlines. I mean, it's almost been subdued by Trump's standards this tour. In fact, it has been. Oh, I agree with you entirely. And in fact, uh, you know, some of the sensationalized headlines we've seen, like, you know, Trump dumping food into the uh, the koi pond in Japan, uh, have just been, you know, sort of pure misrepresentation. Yes. Uh, in fact, this trip seems to be going quite well. Trump has a very strong rapport with the Japanese and with, uh, you know, uh, Prime Minister Abe. And it seems to me that, um, you know, as always with these foreign trips, there's a limit to what uh, you know, sort of one excursion can accomplish. But so far, there's you know very little grounds for anyone to say that this trip is uh, not succeeding. Well, there's still the big showdown with President Z to come, so there, there could be explosions. But well, that's right. The uh, the the Xi relationship is going to be uh, you know sort of the uh, the main event. But it seems to me that uh, President Trump and uh, and and uh, Premier Xi uh, have. Um, have a certain understanding of one another as well. And, uh, you know, you recall Americans, uh, you know, especially progressives, were very alarmed to see uh, President Trump congratulate Xi on consolidating power mm. at the most uh, sort of recent uh, party congress in China. Yeah. But um, but that was, you know, kind of a diplomatic move, perhaps. Yes. And uh, it seems to me that uh, Xi uh, certainly understands uh, Trump and knows that this is a different kind of leader than we've had in the past. And uh, likewise, President Trump seems to understand certain realities about China. It's also worth noting that the Chinese, ever since uh, the Nixon years, have actually preferred to have uh, Republicans in the White House as their uh, sort of um, their counterparties in, uh, in negotiations. They simply think that Republicans are more realistic and uh, have a firmer understanding of power, whereas Democrats are too idealistic and um, too fixated on abstractions. So it seems to me that the uh, the Chinese are actually looking forward to uh, these negotiations and discussions. Great. Well, we'll leave it there, Dan. And thanks very much for talking to us. And please join us again soon. Marvellous. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a spectator moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. <laughs>